Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Podcast about people, product, and crypto. Today, I'm thrilled to have with me the founder of Cresco, Deepak Nulli, also known as Hindu Hacker Online. Welcome, Deepak. Hey, glad to be here. I usually give a bit of an overview of what the project is, but I realized that having the founder himself with us, why don't you give us a simple explanation of what Cresco is as if it were a five-year-old? What we are doing is allowing people to access wealth. So that is what Cresco means growth in Esperanto. And what we want to do is bring access to wealth in whatever form it takes. To start with, we want to give access to people, to stocks and commodities in places where there is no access. For example, in places like Philippines or Nigeria, here it's easy for us, right? Like I used to live in the US and then Canada. It's easy for me to just go to E-Trade or something or Robinhood and, and just buy these stocks, but it's not so easy for everyone else around the world to get access to international stocks. So that's where we'll start. That was a really good overview and I was putting you to the test. Look, if you failed, I don't know who I was going to report you to because you are the founder, but I did have my research and cheat sheet right next to our screen. And yes, I can confirm that Cresco is in a mission to bring finances and wealth to a billion people worldwide. We're doing well so far. Where are you in the world now and where did you grow up or I guess? What is your connection with some parts of the world that would traditionally be locked out of finances? Is, is there a strong problem that you're trying to solve, scratching your own itch? I think there are like two questions there and I'll try to answer them. One is, I grew up in India. We grew up in like a middle-class family and not very well educated. I think you are now like not very well educated in one of the financial tools out there and things like that. But however, like we did have like good, at least as a middle-class person, we did have access to different tools of wealth even within India. And also India does have a good system even for people to get access. When we were growing up, we had like interest rates were like 10% to 12%. They would get that kind of interest rate on your savings. But now if you see the kind of interest rates you get even in Indian banks, it's, it's still decent compared to the rest of the world. We get 5 to 6%. Of course, there's a lot of inflation that is eating into that as well, that plays into it. Uh, yeah, so grew up in India and then saw a lot of these economic like inequalities as growing up. It's pretty like stratified country, I would say. The British have left, but they've left us with this like uh, layer of like caste system uh, back in India, which still to this day exists. Then I moved to uh, the US to do my grad school and then to Canada. And now actually I've spent a lot of time traveling the world. I spent two years uh, traveling through the Amazons in Ecuador, in Peru. Even spent some time going to like some parts of like rural India where it was like really hard for people to get like clean water. Now actually I'm in like Mexico here. And yeah, I've noticed a lot of this kind of financial inequality. People don't even have bank accounts. They just have cell phones. And that is a good way in, right? Like everybody has a smartphone now and we can actually do a lot of things on the crypto rails to uh, help people give that kind of like access to where like regular banks, it does not make sense for them. If you have $5 of savings or $10 of savings, like it does not make sense for these big banks to give bank accounts to people or like banking services and having something on the crypto rails that anybody could access on a mobile phone can make it like super easy. Yeah, that is like one part of the 
question. And then the other part of the question is like, why am I even doing this? And we can go a little deeper into that, but it all started with last year during the whole Wall Street pets and the Robin Hood debacle when UN SEC intervened to start censoring people from doing trades. And that is the other big pillar that we care about. One is to bring access to wealth. And the other one is giving people like, I think access to wealth also includes financial inclusion and it's as equal as freedom of speech. I think freedom of like financial inclusion. That is pretty good. That was very comprehensive. I, I like people that when I jumble a bunch of questions together and they give me a well thought out comprehensive answer. They're able to remember what the second question was because <laughs> most of us just get lost along the way. And when I listened back to the podcast, as I edit, I was like, huh, we never really answered that, but though it was very good. It was very well thought out. There was a lot there to unpack. I've actually been taking notes of the very professional today. Okay. What did you do yeah. to migrate to the U.S. and what did you study? I was, growing up, I was always trying to find weaknesses in the system. I don't know. I just had this curiosity. How do... Like, oh, there's a gate there. Like, but if you just uh, go from the back door, you can just walk right in. So I was a very curious person and wanted to, I didn't know this. I wanted to become a hacker, but I had no idea how one goes on to become one. So I ended up becoming a software engineer after my uh, undergrad. And I don't know, like uh, two years into the thing, I was not really uh, into it. And... All, all of my friends were like, oh, we want to go do grad school in the U.S. And everybody was doing the same thing. Either they would do like computer science or they would go into like management. I was like, okay, like maybe this is the chance for me to go follow my uh, passion. I was like, okay, I'm going to go uh, learn how to become a hacker. And then I was like, okay, let's see how it works. And then I found cybersecurity programs in the U.S. And found one really good program that was like multidisciplinary course uh, in Purdue University. I was like, amazing. This is what I want. I just don't want to be a fully technical person. I want to have a well-rounded understanding of the space of security. So this was a program that had, we do, we had like classes from computer science to technology, to linguistics, to communications. It was a great uh, program for me to go and learn how to become a professional hacker. Yeah, that's what got me to the US. And then you claimed the fantastic handle of Hindu hacker, which I must have thought it's not an easy handle to get because it feels like a crowded space. There's you founding Cresco, and I see you at the same level or very close to the current CEO of Google and Twitter and all these large corporations where, yeah, migrants from India have been able to rise through the ranks, mostly through like technical skills. And I guess pure meritocracy, you may say. Now, I know that you tried <laughs> to do traditional work in the technical space, but something about it didn't quite see. Would you like to be able to share with me some of your web two experience? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that also reminds me, you, you brought up Hindu Hacker. I want to like take you through a quick story why that name is. Uh, it, I didn't actually come up with that name. When I, I used to work in New York, as a hacker for one of the best security companies, even until now, I would say, called Mandiant, we were known to do investigations for state-sponsored hacker groups. For example, I don't know, some East European country wants to hack or some groups within China want to hack into Fortune 500 companies. So what we used to do was we used to go and help them uh, with investigations and try to find who hacked, why did they hack. 
And also we used to work a lot with some governments to help them secure their elections. So I can't name which country, but it was one of the Latin American countries that one of our actually technical directors, uh, I was still a young analyst in the company. So he went to the Latin American country to help with the election commission, to make sure that the elections are fair and there's no tampering going on. Good and luck what here. the opposition did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what happened was the funny story was the, when, so he came back uh, to New York and then there were this like media posts all over uh, this country stating that there was this Hindu hacker coming and hacking into elections of that country. So it was just this like propaganda that the, uh, the opposition created to just say that, you know, it's election is rigged. Uh, and then. They got his picture from Facebook, his wife's picture, and they posted all over the place. And then I think, again, like Latin American people, like they're not very uh, PC. So they, they use like any brown people, they usually call them like Hindus, like Hindu. So they started calling him like Hindu hacker in the media. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a cool name. Like I should, I told my colleague like, hey, maybe you should use this for Twitter. He's no, I'm not too into it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to repurpose this name and use it. <laughs> That's how uh, it came to be. I love it. I grew up in Venezuela, but I'm coincidentally also in Mexico now. And what you're saying is 100% spot on. There's something about this region where people are not very PC, but they're also not necessarily like bad intended, like they don't have like ill intentions. So there's definitely a bit of an element of like ignorance there or like oversimplification. Like you can bundle everyone from a region <laughs> that loosely look the same as the same characterization but what i like is when people are able to take these names or nicknames or descriptions and really own them it reminds me of the time that this senator mrs warren she used the term shadowy supercoder and immediately all these people online were like fuck yeah i have a shadowy supercoder <laughs> yeah so i i love that you own it i think it is a great yeah. description and uh, if there was a marketplace for handles, I'm sure that would be very highly wanted. Yeah. Like I'm not even Hindu and I would Thanks. be considering buying it from you. <laughs> I think, yeah, like to answer your first point, I don't think people are ill-intentioned. It's not used in a derogatory way at all. It's just people are just like innocent. They use it like super innocently. Like uh, it's, it's never to put you down or anything like that. The fun thing about Hindu hacker is when I had that name, I get a lot of these people thinking that, oh, I'm a Hindu hacker. So a lot of these extreme Hindu people are like, oh, this is so cool. And then sometimes they even ask me to like hack into things. No, I'm a professional hacker, right? And then you also get on the other side, right? In India, we have a lot of like Hindu and Muslim kind of divide there, uh, which is quite unfortunate. But we also, I also get those extremists thinking that, oh, I'm a hacker who hacks Hindus. Like, so they think that I'm a Hindu hacker. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so if it, it works out, I think both cases it works out in my favor. The nuance of English language. Yeah, th there's something additional to that name, which is the alliteration. It's what superheroes use. You've got Peter Parker and all these other superheroes. So Hindu hacker. Even if you weren't like Hindu, I think that it just plays really well, the age starter. But anyway, with the name, you were about to spill the beans about your Web2 experience working for a large corporation doing important work. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I enjoyed my time. When I started my career, it was amazing. We, we were like 
doing a lot of like great work. And I was in consulting. That meant that every two weeks I, I would have a chance to go into a new environment. I have no idea how technology works. And I just had like sometimes two to four weeks to just one week, sometimes just three days to understand like how this technology works and the rest of the week to just break this protocol or this technology. So we, we, then it just made me like really good at, okay, like how to understand some technology as fast as possible. I don't need to know everything, but I need to know enough so that I can find the weakness and break it. Uh, so that is like, that is like my setting. And then I took a break. I, I was working in corporate America. It was really fascinating. Worked a lot with big corporations, some three-letter agencies, small corporations, banks, media companies all over the spectrum. But it's too much. So I took a one-year sabbatical, which actually ended up becoming a two-year sabbatical. And after that, I was like, I never want to go back to corporate America. So I started a small security consulting firm of my own. And I went back to my old boss and said, hey, I'm looking for clients. And he's, oh yeah, we are looking for somebody to help us out. So I, I went back and to help this client, which had like 80,000 employees all over the world. And I was helping them with their security incident response team. What that means is when you have such a big company, any incident that happens around like somebody hacking into the accounts, so it, it all gets bubbled up to us. And then we would go and respond and do investigations. It was, as then I started seeing the cracks in this like web two world, right? It was just that there's so much politics, so much bureaucracy. It was not about the technical details or what's the right thing to do. It is more about politics and how you could get social capital based on anything that happened. Uh, even like they had this huge, like this like cyber center, like with like about 15 different teams sitting in this, like the whole floor of this financial institution. And they were literally, there's one team that was doing only Excel. I was like, so if I wanted some work, like usually in my work, like I do everything, right? Some kind of information gathering around some, some hacker group out there. And I'm like, what is this hacker group doing? I think back then it was around Iran. There was some, I, I forget what it was. There's something around like Iran it was like sanctioned or some, oh yeah. I think the U.S. had just executed one of terrorists and then they were like fearing that one of these countries will start attacking them. And then I was, so what we do is then we try to find out which group usually does this and try to find information about them. And then we try to uh, put up like defenses for this particular kind of uh, attack that might come. So we were doing this and I wanted some intel on this group. And there was an intel team. Then I was like, hey, I, I need this intel to uh, get some context around this. Uh, where can I find it? They're like, no, you give us a request and we will actually copy this data from our like database and put it in an Excel sheet, make it pretty and give it to you. Like, doesn't like literally make any sense. There are literally like 10 people in this group. Just their job was just to do this, copy things from a database, put it in an Excel spreadsheet and give it to people, which I can do. If you just give me a command line terminal, I can just do a grab search on this data. But no, you have to go through this kind of process. And I've heard this term a lot of times like, oh, you have to stay in your lane. I think this is again, like maybe this is not just like part of like web two, but it, maybe a big web three company may also have some kind of things like this. But I think I like the grassroots like movement of three, but no, I, I was like very like disillusioned. After that, I was like, I don't care about this industry anymore. I don't care about web two. 
why am I even here? Like I've been in crypto for a long time. Like why not just move my whole like work into Web3? That's when I decided, okay, I'm just going to my security company into Web3 and see who's out there. And through that, I got introduced to the Celo ecosystem. It worked out pretty well. They were actually wanting to do a security audit of their validated nodes themselves. And no other, nobody else had done it. I was like super excited. And I was like, okay, I can do it. So then I got in on there and then uh, did that audit for uh, that ecosystem. Then rest is history. Then that gave me a way in and they were looking for somebody to build that security team. I was like, okay, right on. Let me help you guys with that. And yeah, that's how I got professionally into Web3. Even though I'd been in Web3 since 2013, but this was my first time getting uh, into it professionally. Nice. I, going back to working for Web2, I think that the first thing I'd like to clarify is that if anything, Web2 as in technology is a little bit better because <laughs> a lot of the things that you've mentioned, especially around politics are very common in what I would call like the real world. You know, I've got the, the great privilege of having attended a, a great university in Australia. I am a, what's it called? A, whatever, a member of the court, a, an Australian lawyer. And yeah, most of my friends in real life are consultants, accountants, lawyers, doctors. The frustration that they feel in their careers is very similar to what you describe. It's having very smart people being vastly underutilized in roles that they're not really needed. And I think that part of that is diminishing the roles to something very specific, very repetitive, very monotone. Inevitably, you start getting a lot of inefficiencies, which takes me to my next point. On the one hand, you've got the people that are very smart, underutilized. And then on the other hand, you've got the people that are actually useless, happy that they have a way to waste your time and basically the company's money because they just keep making a living out of it. So you can see how we start getting different players in this politics game. And I think that inevitably over time, you see exactly what happened to you. The people that are more driven, more ambitious, that they just don't want to be wasting their energy on these political games, they leave and then they start smaller companies and smaller competitors that they can actually be more agile, be mission-driven, vision-driven. I believe that most people go to work every morning and they don't really have something that drives them. What am I working towards? I don't really care if you're a small clog in a huge machine, as long as you feel like you're contributing towards something and hopefully it is something that you're aligned towards. I would like to use this segment and this long rant almost as a warning to the crypto world. We need to understand that we're getting very smart and very ambitious people from Web2 precisely because they are escaping the bullshit and the politics. And if we start engaging in that bullshit and politics in the Web3 world, when I start to see people keep breaking off to do smaller things that are manageable and or we're just going to keep alienating people and they're going to go back to Web2, we could potentially halt an entire movement. Yeah. And also I think crypto is giving the individual the power back. I think what has happened is we're still following the whole nine to five system that was created during the industrial age when you had to make these like widgets in these factories, you had to go at nine and have these like economies of scale to build like thousands or millions of this one widget. But we have now already entered the IT information age since like late 
90s, early 2000s, and we're still behaving as though we are still in the industrial age, which we are not. And I think what is, even I think COVID has accelerated a little bit, uh, along with crypto is now, you can work from home, you can be an individual player, or you can join a team, but still like, you can still make a living. Crypto started this year before the whole, the whole COVID restrictions and remote work. You have remote teams working all over the world. And now you see people who are working like multiple projects, right? Like, oh, you're, you're like an analyst for VC firm. You're contributing to code on this project. You're contributing to code on that NFT project. And you're, maybe you're even in a non and like doing like random, like trolling on the internets. So yeah, I think this has given a lot of opportunity to people. And I think this will only continue from here. And this is a fascinating, perfect segue. We could not have timed this better if we tried to go back and talk about the middle class, because I think you're hundred percent correct. The technology and especially crypto, because it is so open and permissive, we are enabling a new way of working. We can recruit from anywhere in the world. People can learn resources online. It's, it is much more collaborative. I think because there is so much to be built, competition could potentially be healthy, although there are some psychos out there. But this brings me back to the middle class point because I also grew up in a middle class family. What does it mean? My parents were professionals. They had an income and the income was relatively good. There are two problems that affected us and I think would probably affect most middle class families around the world. The first one is at the time, we couldn't really escape macro picture. So if your country is going downhill, as good as you can do, you're still capped by the country, you know falling off a cliff. But then the second element, which gets us much closer to Cresco, is fin uh, financial literacy. It is very different to have an income than to be able to invest that income and then have you know passive income streams and be able to diversify. And there's so many things that you can definitely start to see the difference between... Okay, I'll start again. So if you take that framework, I would basically define the middle class as people that are smart and capable and have an income. But because they're lacking that financial literacy aspect, it's only they're illiterate, but they're lacking the sophistication or the access to it, that still holds them back from reaching the next level. And this contrast is most interesting when you see the opposite. People that may not be as highly qualified as an engineer or a doctor, so they may not have a level of income, but because they have the financial literacy, they're able to leverage and play their cards and it's just a different game. And it can actually yield much more, much, dis much more disproportionate results, what I'm trying to say. So I think that bringing the two together is huge. The first one would be around education, which I'm not entirely sure if Cresco would be covering or how much of that end user experience you guys want to cover. But the access part is something that really strikes me because once again, you know, growing up in Venezuela, and by the way, even in Australia, if you want to trade foreign stocks, you know, in Venezuela, we don't have a stock market. It's a joke. It's like three companies and it's all manipulated. And in Australia, we, we do have a local market, but you may want to participate in foreign markets as well, particularly in the US. It is incredible how expensive it is. I think that in recent times, there are more competitors which are trying to compete on that front. But overall, if a country like Australia still has barriers uh, of access, what's left for the rest of the world? To make matters worse, this is if people want to invest, but even if you focus on like everyday financial services, 
there is a really shitty paradox, which I'm really happy to see people like yourself addressing, whereby the more in need that people are, the higher the fees and the more expensive the service. Like I, I got into crypto because of that problem. Remittances, my parents sending money to me in Australia and then I send money to them now. And I just couldn't believe how some companies, most of the profit comes from the remittance passages or the, the, the remittance routes between or, or to, to low-income countries. Like you're sending money to your family that you've worked really hard and that you've saved and they can take up to 7 10%. Like it's really, I'm not going to say it's criminal. You know, it's a free enterprise. It, it really is up to us to rise up to the challenge and build something better. But it is something that has to be said that people may have thought it was normal because it was nothing else. And I guess that getting money, it's always good. But this is where I think we need to be much more vocal on actually technology does create new opportunities and especially technology like crypto where you completely replace the railways or, or, or the core components and it enables you to basically overcome some of the challenges you've mentioned before around cost of traditional institutions. I, I think you're right, right? I think education plays a big role for Cresco as well. So what we are doing is we don't plan to like, you know, we're not spend any like time doing any marketing. So we are uh, a community first project where we have been like the way we our marketing is by just educating the community about, hey, what are the DeFi tools out there? And in the beginning, I think there is also like a staged approach we're taking is, I think there is a lot of education that needs to be done, even with people, right? Like you see a lot of people who are right now, this is the group of users that we have been like seeing a lot is people who are either like middle class, they do have a job, uh, they, they're working remotely, maybe they're like, oh, what's it called? Like, uh, nomads, digital nomads, and they have, if you talk to them, everyone knows crypto now, like it's, it's no longer, oh, it's this esoteric out there. What are you doing in the dark web, trying to buy drugs thing anymore? Everyone knows it. Everyone has either dabbled with it. You have like some, at least people have like Coinbase account. They have some crypto there or Binance. So what I'm seeing is that a lot of people in crypto who have come, uh, this kind of people are. They don't still get Web3. They just have these like tokens in the, this is like me, right? This is me in 2016, 17, where I just have these like tokens in the exchange and you're just like doing some trading, which really does not solve the purpose. You still are then uh, like you've replaced your bank with this exchange, which is much worse, but at least with banks, at least in the US, you have some kind of insurance. And now with the exchanges, if they get hacked, literally no recourse, right? You made your own financial risk profile bad, much worse than what it was with that file. There is some education that needs to be done there as well of, hey, why should you be thinking about moving those crypto into your own custody or using some of these tools to grow your wealth? So that is a big part of what we do is we do educate people around how to use uh, these like different like crypto platforms and how to make safe bets and not go to degen uh, out there. So that is one. And then the other thing around like access, right? Like, of course, like a lot of these like Web2 products give you access, right? Robinhood gives you like free trades. I think there is one called like Fink or something like in Mexico as well, actually called Fink or something like that does like a similar model. But what people don't understand with these like centralized like Web2 services is that if the service is free, then there is some 
motive behind it. It's not free. If you look at how much Robinhood made, like I think in 2020 or 2019, I'd, I'd forget, like they made like $700 million. That's everything. Like, where is that money coming from? If you look a little under the hood, you find out that, okay, they sold your data to these hedge funds, to these market makers. And then that is what you are the product, right? Like, like it's a famous popular saying that uh, Facebook users, you are the product. And I think it actually gets worse because the business model, like they milk it in every direction. And look, do your own research. I'm not a hundred percent sure of what I'm saying, but as far as I understand it, not only do they sell the trading data to hedge funds, they do it in such a way whereby it's almost in real time. Like the hedge funds can literally set up trading operations to front run you. And you're always paying like a spread or a premium price because there's somebody that knows what trade you're going to place, how much you're willing to bet, and they're willing to like, yeah, front run you. Yeah, there are a, a few things, right? Like, so when you have these market makers, right? Like you are like an individual trader, you're going to trade, let's say you want to buy, I don't know, I'll just make this up. Let's say Apple is at $100 and you want to go buy Apple today and you're like, oh, like I just want to buy in stocks of Apple and somebody quotes you a rate of $100 and 10 cents. You're like, all right, I'm going to buy like it's just 10 cents extra. But on the other side is not a seller was selling it to you. It's like these like market makers who are just, just running these like parts that are just like giving you a rate that is just like 10 cents more. And they're like buying it from somebody else for 10 cents less and selling it to you for that price. And then they make this money at scale. So the, the thing is, if you take a step back right, and look at it a little more like strategically, what they're doing is the whole like system itself is rigged against you as the user of this platform, because the incentive for these companies is to make money for their, uh, their investors. So whoever is the investor, the goal of the company is to make as much as money for your investor and not for the user of the platform. So then. The values of the users are super like misaligned with the values uh, or the mission of the company. That's where I think the whole system is rigged, right? Like the whole stock market, the whole public markets, everywhere, like the whole thing is rigged, right? But in Web 2, Web 3, sorry, uh, it's a little different, right? It is, okay, so we, this is a saying that I've heard a lot of, lot of like millennials use is, they say like the, one of the secrets to wealth is, the least number of trades you make, the more money you actually make. So if you want to make wealth, you should actually be doing fewer trades and not more trades. But if you look at Robinhood, what they're literally doing is they're using every psychology research out there to generate as much as traffic as possible. So that traffic is on this platform is just trades, right? And how do they... Let you do that. Oh, we'll give you free trades so you can do unlimited number of trades, but it's not free. And for if you were to actually make wealth for yourself, like you have to make fewer trades, right? So that the value is like very misaligned. Just like the casino giving you free drinks. Then exactly, the nerds, right? they yeah. know yeah. it is easy for people to make money. You know, you sit down on a table, you play some cards, you play the roulette. It's not hard to make money at the casino. It's hard to keep it. And they give you the drinks, yep. they give you the food, they've got entertainment. Nobody wants to leave early. Even if you could live with cash in hand, 
they've got their business down pat. Trading is the same. We could sit right now and look at the fundamentals on the charts and make a prediction and timestamp it. We could probably pick a winning trade today, short-term kind of thing. And then we do another one tonight and then one at midnight and then one at 4 a.m. sleep deprived and then you start chasing losses. That's why they traders always get wrecked. All my friends that want to get into crypto, yep. I don't know why they all want to get into trading. And I was like, no, pick a handful of coins, maybe stake it. I love the motto, stake it until you make it. Yes, it is boring, but it is a winning strategy. And there are higher levels of degeneracy, but they definitely involve less trades and just being more strategic, being more level-headed with what you're doing. I love your description about how or exactly how the front running that I described happened. They buy from someone else at 100 and then they sell it immediately to you for 110. Because basically, I don't know, may make some enemies here. They're basically like tax extracting rent seeking middlemen. They're not really adding any value, but they're extracting value from every transaction from every user. And yeah, it's interesting when you mention the distinction between who are you trying to maximize value for? Because I remember crystal clear from back in the days, you know, my startup days, it would often create two, three, four pitch decks. And this is because your product sells very differently depending on who you're selling to. So the pitch deck for investors, you really need to make it clear to them what is the business model, where is the value coming from, et cetera. The pitch deck to users is what problem are you solving for them? And hopefully you're able to add value to them in some way. If the two are aligned, there's nothing wrong with it. But you can definitely see how there are some relationships that get very sensitive. And this brings us to my next point, which are like large scale trigger events. You've mentioned Wall Street bets. I would say that is one of them. And maybe we could open up this section with a question first, which I have completely foreshadowed, but. <laughs> Are you bullish or bearish on the crypto macro fundamentals? And I guess what would be some of the drivers that you see that would make people be more interested, make it easier for them to onboard them, make our value propositions be more compelling to them? Yeah, I always think in terms of scale, like how, what is your time horizon? A lot of things are happening right now. To be honest, like all the like macro researchers and like, analysts out there nobody knows like nobody knows if you call yourself a researcher you default don't know if you get paid for your yeah. research you don't know shit it's life experience yes. and natural curiosity and uh, the midnight basement dwellers going deep into just chasing leads they don't yeah yeah i, I don't know it's very hard to like predict right macro we do know like certain like uh, world events that are happening and things like that but I don't really care. I, I look at where the technology is uh, moving towards. I'm like super bullish on uh, this crypto revolution, the Web3 revolution, whatever you want to call it. I think this is like the next stage and we will discover what crypto is about in the next like decade, two decades. I think it'll be like how we had 2001, 2002, people are talking about the internet. And you had no idea like how big it was going to grow. And now you see, can't imagine your life without internet. I remember like my dad used to be like, why don't you go outside and play? What are you going, go on our like bicycles to these like cyber cafes to check the internet out and chat with people all over the world on these like, IRC chats. 
And we, I mean, like, like that, that we had no idea. You and we didn't have any idea, like how it would be. So if you extrapolate that for Web3, it's going to just be out there. And I think that going back to our like earlier discussions around Web2 versus Web3 kind of model and where are the incentives? I think Web3 at least brings these alignment of the incentives little closer to the users. For example, Cresco, right? Like we're building this uh, product. Uh, of course, we do have investors, but eventually the owners of this project are the community, right? If we do a good job at designing our like tokens in the right way, then the community owns like the majority of the tokens and the community is also the user of this platform. Then we can make these decisions that are very much aligned. For example, like we are like fully like our value is to be like long-term focused. We think long-term all the time. Personally, in my investment thesis is always long-term. I, when I buy something, I decide to hold it for the next like five to 10 years. That is the horizon I'm looking at it. And we get do the same thing with users, right? We can be like, okay, we are aligned with you guys. And I think long-term is the way to go. And we can actually incentivize people to make the right things, right decisions and make them, you know, like give incentives for people to take these long-term decisions. And we're not very like then, like there is no pressure from a third party that is trying to make money here. All the parties are like super aligned. We as developers are aligned with the users who are also owners of this network when it gets launched. So then it, it brings a lot of these values and uh, values alignment with uh, all the parties that are involved, especially with the users who are actually making the uh, work. There's three things that I want to touch on there. The first one is life before the internet. And honestly, maybe that should be an entire podcast series of its own. What I really enjoy is that you can almost with a higher level of accuracy tell like someone's age or when they grew up by their memories of life for the internet so anyway that was a a nice trip down memory lane i remember my mom picking up from school and we had the first broadband modem which was like insanity like i couldn't believe it was a, it's not incremental it was like an exponential improvement like i still remember the fights yep. in my house over the phone line and connecting with this shitty internet connection and it made these weird noises when you connected. And there was nothing to do online, but it was so much fun to be there. And my funniest memory is, I was like 12. I was like very young, but I was also prolific on these like cars forum. And I just spent hours talking to people and explaining them about cars and Toyotas and Subarus and shitting on American cars. And if people have seen my posts on the near governance forum, some people may say that nothing has changed. <laughs> but anyway, my mom was like, what are you doing? Like, you're like decades away from driving. But anyway, long story short, the internet has been amazing. And that is a really good segue into the second point, which is, I completely agree with you that it is impossible to predict the future and it is borderline a waste of time to try to be, you know, too predictive in that sense. What I do see, and I'd like to know whether you see the same, is a few years ago, 2016, 2017, it was a mix between what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Like, why do we need this? The current thing was fine. And the natural consequence of that thinking was what you're doing must be addressing something, which is actually hard to do now because it's late. So you're trying to bypass it. And I guess that we're extremely lucky that the world is a very big place. 
and there are a lot of people that not only did they know <laughs> that we needed different infrastructure and that we were addressing real problems, but they actually experienced it themselves. So in many ways, this is a gift to the West that while they were blissfully unaware of this very convoluted pile of problems that were boiling up, there were people that were already building. So I think that what we've seen in the last two years, maybe three years, is event after event that have casted a spotlight into some of these issues. You may say censorship, you may say COVID response, you may say financial markets manipulation, central banks printing money. There are so many narratives happening now that even though some people may try to capitalize on them from a political angle, because they're playing old games and trying to change or, or size political power or, or maintain political power. What I think all these narratives have in common is a distrust for traditional institutions. And I think this is our opportunity to say, yeah, no shit, we've been saying this for a decade. We're building a system or we're building railways where you don't have to trust us. You need to, you can't trust the system as a machine. It can be audited, you can inspect the code, it will execute independently. And I think this leads to my third point, which is the ownership of these decentralized platforms. Some people confuse it with like communism, the people own everything, but it's actually different. It's when you introduce these platforms that are indeed quasi-independent from the people building them, and they're designed in that way to embed trust into the code and the computing nature of it. Then you have the question of, well, who controls it? There has to be a way to improve it, to manage it, to make sure that it keeps growing. So most protocols, and I think Cresco falls in this category, and I'd love for you to expand on that in a minute. What most protocols do is they design ways to transfer ownership of these tokens over time to the users or people that would be aligned with the mission of the platform. And this is super interesting because we've never done this before. And so far, the early experiments is we end up having about the same levels of concentration in ownership as in the you know, web to real world. I think that just says more about human nature. Like if we design a system that fairly distributes something and people have the freedom to sell it potentially at a profit, that's up to them. Like we can't blame the system. We can't blame the distribution mechanism. There is always an element of education and people understanding the power that the tokens confer and maybe the potential future of them. But I do think that it is super interesting that we're presenting an alternative to the system that people are starting to realize is increasingly broken. And I don't think a lot of people have made that connection yet. So I think that was where my question about, are you bullish about the future of crypto and how can we start mm. blending in the crypto and the centralization narrative into more people's everyday life? So I'll start with the hook. Like, you know, I think one of the good things about crypto, right? I think it was like, again, like right now, it is not as wild as Wild Wild West back, I don't know, when 2013, 2014 time era, when I got into it. It was savage. Like was, was, if you, absolutely yeah, savage. It was savage. <laughs> it was savage. And then the, the whole ICO craze came up in 2016, 17 timeframe and it went like apeshit. But it actually, if you actually were like smart enough and actually had a way to find like a good teams. What it allowed you to do was get right at the ground floor, right? Like 
ground floor and participate, you had a choice or you had an option to be recognize the right teams, recognize the right projects and recognize and say, hey, I want to be part of this ecosystem. And you didn't need to have, I didn't have, I didn't have any VC connections. I didn't know any VCs, but I, as an individual could like do my research, go and buy Bitcoin, go and buy Ethereum, release like uh, soonish, right? Within a year, within a year of this project going live, I was able to make these pets. I've made a pet on like one quite early in all the layer ones. Like I, I believed in, okay, like I think something like, like Solana would do well, something like Nier would do well something like Terra. So I was, I had this ability to like say, okay, this is my thesis. I don't know anybody. I don't have any connections. I can still go and make these bets and get access to these things quite early on. Uh, but that is not true in Web2. If you want to get access, right? When did, let's say SpaceX, right? I, I'm so excited about this project, right? It's been there for half a decade, like six years, like 10 years almost. I don't know. But by the time it actually goes public, right, there's so much value. Of course, there'll be still value to be captured after the project goes like public. But imagine the kind of returns like somebody who got in at the seed stage of SpaceX would make versus when it actually goes live. So that is missing. So that is the thing that Web3 brings us. But unfortunately, right now, like I think it's getting like a little harder with like regulations and you still... But there's still that opportunity. You want, instead of waiting for 10 years for something to go public, maybe we'll go public in one year or maybe two years. You want after that two years, you want though now with some regulations, only institutional investors are investing in this like early rounds. There's still so much uh, scope that if you uh, believe in something or if you can make a bet, you still have this kind of like ability to get access to this quite early on. We mentioned that a lot of businesses have a fundamental tension between trying to maximize profit for their investors or the stakeholders and creating value for users and how it can create toxic relationships. The government is exactly the same. When they come out with a narrative and they say, we need regulation to protect, fill the blanks, who are you really trying to protect? And this is why we have this podcast and this is why we've got a YouTube channel and this is why we host our own conferences and we have hacker houses. We need to have the ability to, I don't want to say control the narrative, to be part of the narrative and to express our point of view. Because the truth is the government is trying to protect old money. All the systems that were there in place and that have built relationships like the ones that we have described, exploitative, friend-seeking, middlemen relationships where there's very little innovation. All the value created in the last 20 years from tech companies, it was allowed to happen because the money was captured at the Wall Street level. They didn't foresee that the founders of those companies were going to become the real powerful people in society, despite the money. They have the fucking brains and the talent, and they have the ability to inspire people to follow them. I think people are shitting themselves about Elon Musk now. It's not his money. It's his ability to execute that very few people have. So I think that when we start taking these over to the crypto world, crypto rewards curiosity. When you remove all the barriers of access, we actually have a system where we encourage people to be critical thinkers. Are they all smart? No. Are some people going to get wrecked? A hundred percent. But we are creating a system where we remove the, it's called the, the nanny state government or these trusted experts 
that they have been vetting information for us for decades and in doing so, actually protecting someone else. And by the way, this happens in every industry. Like I'm into the biohacking movement. <laughs> Once you start digging deeper, it's every official government policy. It's almost deliberately designed to hold people back. All the outliers have one thing in common. They are either leeching off government or doing the exact same opposite as the government says. So I think that crypto in that sense has immense opportunity to encourage people to really go out there, do their own research, access opportunities, like all the doors are open, but also we have the challenge of we need to honor narrative. We need to make sure that we're not perceived as creating a nation of rebels, like domestic terrorists label is 100% coming. We need to make sure that we're creating a narrative of, no, you are the corrupt ones, or here are the specific problems that we're trying to address, and this is a specific solution that we're trying to provide for the specific users. Like, I think more transparency is good. I think that more communication around certain topics is good. And I'm really excited to see projects like Cresco going beyond what could potentially be endless shit fights on Twitter and presenting, look, this is a real product. This is what it does. This is how you could use it today. And that's what I'd like to learn actually about now. <laughs> Where are you at in product Yeah, development? before we get there, I do want to answer uh, the other part of it. How is like the models that we're building, right? How are the governance structures uh, different? And how do we not evolve into this like socialist regimes model within crypto systems, which I don't think uh, has worked. So I think the difference here is that a well-designed like crypto system has different actors and the job of like the designer of this system is to ensure that the token economics is designed so that all the actors, right? Like if you take a layer one, like there you have, for example, like validators or miners on one side, you have market makers on the other side, you have the developers of the project on the other side, and you have people building on the project. So having a way to have the right incentives for all these Actors is like critical to have a good system. Just because you say, this is the other thing I've seen. Just because these projects say they're Web3 does not mean they're Web3. I've seen so many projects that are just like Web2 projects with a token attached to them. And they call themselves like Web3. That is not, I think people will be up for a good surprise, like two years or three years down the line when all these projects start failing and people are like, will not start, will not know like why, because I can see it right now, like people are not designing these systems. In terms of like Cresco, like there are a few actors, right? Like this is our job to make sure that all these actors within this protocol are aligned or incentivized properly. I would say for a synthetic asset protocol or an, usually it applies to other DeFi projects as well. Uh, I would say like the developers, like we, we are the developers of this protocol. We've designed it in the early days. We are the leaders in the beginning. I think this is the other thing, like you can't, create anything without having somebody to lead it. If nobody's leading it, like there's no direction. So somebody has to show the direction. Of course, in the early days, we as developers will have a lot of direction to say of how it goes. And we will create this community. We already started creating communities around our project. And then uh, I think we have, even without going with, with being live, we have a pretty big and well-engaged community. So that is the other part, right? So you have the developer team, you have your community of users uh, and then you have other people in our network, at least for people who are doing market making or 
creating these synthetic asset uh, assets. Then you have other participants within the network, like liquidators and things like that. So these are different agents within this protocol. And we have to design a system that makes sure that all these people are well incentivized and aligned. Actually, I had written systems design before, I think when you were talking about your education or something. And I love that the systems thinking and systems design is coming up again in the context of tokenomics, because I think that's actually a really big shortcoming of living in a nanny state and society where everything is curated and catered for you. And we discourage people from thinking and questioning. Once people come to crypto, at least if they want to be builders and most certainly if they want to be able to assess projects by their marriage and the potential early on, you can't just keep your toes. Like you have to go all in and really dive deep into this complex adaptive systems. You need to have a really good understanding of who are all the players, what are all the variables, what are all the potential different outcomes. I think we have a challenge with creating and nurturing societies that are unable to comprehend and create these complex adaptive systems. And by the way, this is where a lot of these conspiracy theories go small group of people that think they are the only ones able to understand the systems and that the people that are designing the systems are by default also in the minority. Everyone else is in the middle. We just go the default day by day. So I would be really interested to see if you have any ideas or recommendations about where people can go to learn more about like systems thinking or immerse themselves in Anything that could help them both understand tokenomics at a general level, enable them to create better tokenomics for their projects, assess the tokenomics, or even make recommendations to projects that they like on how to improve. Have you seen any good material out there on that topic? Yeah, it's hard. So for me, my career itself has been like a training ground to think in systems. So like the biggest Engineers. thing was, I think, <laughs> the challenge is how can we get the challenge is how can we get everyday people to think like engineers? Because yeah. you have the engineering yeah. training, you may not be necessarily working in that specific field, but you can see the benefits. In a very weird, odd way, I've got legal training, which is very ancient. It's like hundreds of years old, but it also have very structured frameworks for breaking down problems and making sure that you address different things and. It's not nearly the same. Like, I feel like I've definitely been upgraded <laughs> and I learned something new the more that I delve into technology, but at least it is a framework that I've used as a base. So I'm thinking for anyone, and let's assume that this is a very wide demographic potentially listening to this podcast, where could be a good starting point to start thinking more like an engineer? I'll, I'll also like caveat this by saying that I'm personally not a software engineer. I'm like a... More like a thinker of systems and the breaker, right? Like I love to like break systems or like design systems. The Hindu uh, hacker. Like what I do, the Hindu hacker. So I think one book I would recommend is, there's a book called like Thinking in Systems. That would be a good book. And any book on this again, like me going back to my security books, right? Like any book on like threat modeling would be a good way to actually go deeper into this. Even I would recommend this book even for like engineers building systems here to look at like threat modeling, like literature or how you can build systems uh, that are like more like uh, resilient uh, and trying to 
build like threat models for systems. I think a lot of engineers just go either the four projects or they just like hack together something uh, based on their intuition and not really do a rigorous like uh, analysis on like how systems work. And then they end up failing either like six months down the line or sometimes two years down the line. So uh, those are like a few ways for like users who want to get into this. Uh, I would definitely recommend like looking at something like Masari and looking at like different uh, projects and just having seeing like the breakdown a very simple like model you can use that will like get you a lot of leverage is just looking at how the token is distributed usually people have or you can go to like fine market cap um, Masari does a good job of like breaking down all the popular projects into like how is the token distributed between the different people in the ecosystem and how is it going to get uh, allocated to people over the next few years those are a good way to start your like understanding of how these systems work just by looking at this, right? This is just like one small thing that you can use and you can make like predictions of how this protocol will do like uh, with like about like 70% accuracy, I would say just this one small thing. That's awesome. Just for people that may not be familiar, Masari is what I would describe as the Bloomberg of crypto. They do a lot of research, especially like especially like, like proper research into protocols, financial modeling. It's the less clickbaity side of things. And you just reminded me, I'm actually one of the fellow advisors to projects I'm working with. Uh, he works at Masari, so I may ask him to come on the podcast. I think it could be a good follow-up. I'll add these books and resources on the notes below. And if you think of anything else between now and the date of pu publishing, let me know. Sure. We were... About to jump into Cresco specifically. So if you could, yes, the, the question was, where is Cresco at in terms of like product development, any upcoming dates, any way that the community could get involved at this stage, be it feedback or user testing, any, anything like that? Yeah, so I'll tell you where we are. So we are about, uh, I would say six to eight weeks uh, to launch our testnet. So we. We will be announcing our incentivized testnet dates soon. Uh, keep an eye out for that. So we have currently, I would say, three products. So one is the protocol itself, which is the synthetic asset protocol. This is the protocol that allows uh, anybody to give some kind of like uh, crypto as collateral and mint a synthetic asset. So basically, think of it as if you want to create a stock like an Apple stock, what we're not doing is that a lot of people think that we're actually going to a stock market like NASDAQ or something or like E-Trade and buying these like Apple stocks and then we are like tokenizing it and selling it that back. That's not what we're doing. We are a non-custodial solution, uh, a protocol that allows anybody to come and say, hey, I want to give $100, uh, let's say 150 or $200 worth of uh, USDC or some kind of like crypto. So you give like $200 worth of crypto and then you create say $100 worth of Apple stock. So what you have done is you have collateralized this stock by uh, 100% and then you have generated this thing. So if you can in a way think of this kind of user as a market maker who comes to this protocol and creates some kind of value by creating these like stocks. And what they can then do is take that $100 worth of Apple add another $100 of, let's say, uh, like some kind of like stable coin and put it on an AMF. And now once that is done, that creates a service. Then anybody else 
as a trader need not know what happened. Now they can come and buy this Apple stock uh, from this AMM. So uh, the market maker has come or collateralized uh, the asset and created the asset. And then on the other side of the market, somebody can uh, like buy and sell. So this is one product, right? This is the uh, protocol that we've been developing for almost a year. We will be releasing the security audit report by Quantstamp soon. But right now we have made our GitHub public. If you go to our uh, Twitter handle is Cresco FI. So that is K-R-E-S-K-O F-I as in finance. So Cresco FI. And our website is also at Cresco.fi. So if you go to either places, you can uh, either go to, to Twitter or to our website and go find our like GitHub link and see our code. Yeah. So this is like one product. Then the other product is actually like the front-end application or the platform that will allow you to create these stocks and then trade these stocks. Uh, and this is something that we will be uh, launching in the next coming few weeks as a testnet launch first. Want to make sure that it is secure before we uh, launch on the on the mainnet. Uh, Great approach. Yeah, so those are like two. Yeah. I'm fine with that. I'm happy to wait. Yeah. yeah. So those are like two products. And then we are also will be having a surprise product that we'll be releasing. We're not announcing that to anybody yet, but that is going to come afterwards. Uh, so just like teasing the community right now that it's going to come. Uh, it'll be super fun and exciting. Finance can get boring sometimes. So we want to bring some fun into it. Yep. I, Alex Shevenko, the, the CEO of Aurora, recently tweeted that they're going to be making an announcement in the next 24, 48 hours. And somebody left a comment that I think aptly captures this moment. It says... Crypto blue balls are the worst. <laughs> you are definitely chasing us here, sir. It is really good to know that yeah. you've got two products close to launching and one secret one coming up next. So in case you did not have enough for the first two, there's more to come. There's just one thing. I'm relatively new to this world. So I'm going to assume that people listening may have similar questions and just put myself out there as a complete beginner. It may help me to understand or, or deepen my understanding of, of these concepts. Maybe if we could draw two parallels, the first one with the traditional financial world and how derivatives work in that world, paper synthetics, you may call them. And then also, and perhaps most relevantly, if there are any examples of other projects that have been doing this in the crypto world so that people can have maybe a, a reference. I think DYDX may be on that category. And I know that you guys do some things differently. So this would be an improvement or an enhancement on some of these other protocols. Yeah, sure. So in the traditional world, right, there are a lot of these like esoteric things that you can do uh, and they're not very accessible to people, right? You have this like smart contract. Their version of the smart contract is like these like stacks and stacks of like paper. If you watch this movie, The Big Shot, right, during the 20, 2008 like financial crisis, that's literally what they did. If you just watch that movie, that's uh, the guy who wanted to like short the uh, housing market. So they created a derivative to like uh, do that. But you need to have like access to these like bankers and millions of dollars to write these esoteric derivatives. Of course, there are other, you can even consider options as like some kind of derivatives, futures and options as well. There is a fantastic episode between Tim Ferriss and I am pretty sure it is Peter Atia. He was approached to be 
I think he was like the chief science officer or some role. He's a doctor and he was approached by the Theranos lady, uh, Elizabeth Holmes. And he had a few meetings and something was really sus. I think he actually worked there for a little bit. And then he left because he knew it was just complete horse shit. And he says that he could have made a ton of money, but he didn't know at the time of options. And that he found out after the fact that had he gone to a bank and said, hey, sell me an option for X stock at a certain price, would you be able to explain step by step how an option would work? You basically pay for the right to execute the terms of that option in the future, but it's optional. So if you pass on it, you just leave the money on the table. Is that an accurate description? So the options, you, you, there are two sorts of options, right? Like there's a call and a put. So the call option is when you are saying that the stock price will go up and a put is that it will go down. It gets confusing. So I, I don't want to go too much technical. You can also buy a call and you can sell a call. We can buy a put and sell a put. It gets like too, too complicated, but basically... Uh, in the high level, what you're saying is, let's say the stock price of Apple, just use Apple, that is like $100. And you think at a certain date that the price of Apple will be $110. Then you can buy a call option because you may not have the whole money, right? You may not have, I don't know, like $10,000 uh, to buy a thousand uh, Apple stocks. So what you can instead do, sorry, like if you $100,000 to buy hundred Apple stocks, if it's a uh, hundred dollars. So if what you can do is you can say, okay, I think on date, let's say June 15th, the price of Apple will be 120. So then you don't need to, and then you can just buy an option based on the strike price of, you don't have to give that hundred thousand dollars. Maybe you can just pay like $10,000 to get an upside similar to having bought the Apple stock itself, but you're not buying the actual underlying asset, but you're buying this. That's why it's called a derivative. You're buying a derivative that is based on the price of Apple. So you can have the same thing on the opposites. If you think that you go to $90, you can do the same thing. So if you're in the financial world, you would call this hedging. If you are an outsider, you would call this a prediction market or gambling. It's just a way to be able to own certain assets without having to put all the cash up front. And I guess giving maximum flexibility to the investor and the issuer. Would that be an accurate way to describe it? Uh, accurate, but disparaging. Yeah, yeah. It, some people, there are different ways, right? Uh, it's not very, people use it indifferently. These are the same instruments. Some people use it to hedge. Like, for example, like you have, a, like you're a farmer and you have this crop right now and it's, it's, it's still not seasoned to harvest it. So you can literally say, ah, uh, when I harvest it, like I want to have enough money so you can like literally like sell that today's price basically uh, so that you are hedging if there's something wrong with the, with the weather or like the climate uh, when it happens. So that is like one way of hedging. Other way of hedging is uh, you can do like other ways of hedging for like companies can do hedging to make sure like with the, let's say you have like a foreign exchange and you, you every, every like quarter that you have a lot of money that needs to get transacted but in a foreign currency so you can buy that sooner so that is one way of that's called hedging then there's the other way is like this speculation right you're just like a trader or you're like working in a hedge fund and you just want to like speculate on the price and just make money so that those i would say two things and of course the third way is some random person like not knowing either of these things and you have this random way of oh i want to make money and i think this will go up because everyone on Twitter said it will go up. So that is 
I would say falling in more like gambling the bucket. I love that you illustrated the first two real world examples, farmers and companies, because there are indeed real world use cases. I think inevitably over cycles of time, the people in the third bucket add up and we may end up with systemic risks and, and collapse. But that was a really good overview. And I think I am ready for you to enlighten me about similar or, or, or yeah, other approaches in that category in the crypto world. Yeah. So what we are doing, at least for what Cresco is doing, is a very simple derivative, right? What, what we are doing is a very simple derivative, right? Like our derivative is nothing but the price of the stock itself. So instead of creating some exotic, like uh, the instrument, we're just saying, okay, like there is a stock, it has a $100. Let's create the same instrument uh, using a token at the same price. So that's why we call it like a synthetic stock, right? So we're doing something similar, simple, which I think is uh, what I think is like a lot of people need access to and they don't have access to. So we, we want to democratize this access and some other projects that are doing something similar that come to mind are synthetics. It's on one of the uh, original and synthetic asset protocols and derivative protocols uh, in the space. Fun fact. And, and another. Yeah. They are Australian or at least they were based in Sydney for a while. I believe they're in Singapore now for regulatory reasons. And I've known of them since the very early days. And I could have potentially made a shift in the money if I actually had understood how the protocol works. But because it was a little bit too complex for my understanding level at the time, I just kept writing them off and the project just kept growing and growing. But yeah, it's a fun memory and you're triggering me here, but we'll go with it. Yep. How do you improve or what are some of the challenges synthetics had and how does Cresco build upon that? Yeah. So that is one. And the other one, a similar project is uh, Mirror Protocol. That is on the Terra blockchain. So these are two, I would say, like very closely connected with like what we're doing, similar to what we're doing. So we are an oil protocol, right? Like we did not fork uh, any other project. So we designed this from the scratch. So how are we different? So the way like synthetics works is you have to vote collateralize by last I checked by 500% instead of 200% that we want to do. It's really good. Like I would say synthetics is amazing for people who want to do like large amount of trades, right? on the trading side of things, not on the market making side of things, on the trading, if you wanted to swap, I don't know, like a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, into, you can do it with zero slippage, which is amazing. But as a market maker, creating these like stocks or like these like synthetic assets, it is literally like, uh, what's it called? It is very risky because they have this shared, that pool that is shared between everybody who's doing, creating these stocks or like synthetic uh, assets. So you don't know what kind of risk you take because some assets are going up, some assets are going down. For example, like something like gold is a steady asset, something like Bitcoin and Ethereum are volatile assets, like even Tesla could be a volatile asset. And there are other assets that may be like a negative asset, like you can do like a negative thing. So it is very hard to do a risk profile for that. So we didn't want to go down that model. In our case, what we do is we create a... Uh, a world that is like self, what's it called, contained. But the way we do it is we create a deposit pool, right? Let's say you want to, you have just like $10,000 hanging out. So you can just deposit that into a pool. This is very similar to how like, like the lending and borrowing market, like Aave works, is you create this like uh, big like uh, deposit pool, and then you can borrow out these like synthetic assets. Let's say you have deposited like $10,000 uh, worth of uh, 
USDC, and then you can borrow, say, $5,000 worth of a Tesla stock. So your core collateral is by 200%, not 500%, so it's capital efficient. Uh, and then you can then go and create liquidity out of it. And the other like advantage we have over, let's say, something like a mirror is that we can create multiple positions out of the same basket of uh, deposits that you have done. So, for example, I could borrow like like Tesla, I could borrow like Apple, I could borrow like maybe like uh, synthetic like Near out of that one basket. In terms of uh, how it is easier compared to like Mirror is that in Mirror you'd create like three different positions to create these three different assets. In terms of like Cresco, we just create like one deposit pool and we borrow out of it. That way, let's say like tomorrow, like the price of Apple is like going up. The price of Tesla is also going up. The price of film or like near is also going up. Then you have to go in terms of like in mirror, you have to go and try to pack all those three positions uh, to make sure that you don't get liquidated. In a, on our protocol, uh, we just go to this one basket and just put more money into this one basket and you can manage it. Just becomes a little easier to manage your... Uh, so just to clarify... The synthetic shortcoming is that they've got one pool for all the users and all the positions. Hard to calculate risk. You've got isolated pools for each user, but you combine the assets for all of that specific user's positions. Is that correct? So in our case, we combine for a specific user's position, all the collateral assets we combine. So awesome. I, I get it. So that is the advantage over computers. Awesome, Deepak. I have a much better understanding of Cresco and I really hope that people listening to do to these do as well. I will leave all the links to your personal socials and Cresco on the show notes. And the very last thing before I let you go is you mentioned an incentivized testnet. If you could give me the 30 second summary of how that would work, I'm sure we could get a lot of people that are interested in that and we can wrap it up. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll be uh, doing an incentivized testnet and more details will come. So what we'll be doing during this testnet is just to, you know, get more eyes on the protocol, try to see if people can break the protocol. So you can contribute if you're technical, you can do like liquidations, you can like create a bunch of, we'll have like also a leaderboard and we'll give like some points to uh, create some excitement on based on the different kind of actions you can take. So we'll have that. Also, if you are not technical and you you, are, you want to just support us to the community to like do some like mad memes, you want to promote like what we're doing, be part of the community, we'll have like equal opportunity for both technical and non-technical people to come and like participate in our ecosystem and be part of the ecosystem and become Crestian. You will be, yeah, just welcome. So for now, I would say go to Twitter, give us a follow there and then yeah, more to come soon. That's amazing. So whether you are a Hindu hacker or a mad memer, there is a place for you in the Kreskin community. Thanks so much, Deepak. That's a wrap. <laughs> Thanks to AVB. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you've made it this far, you're amazing. Just a reminder that all the information provided in the Wild User Interviews podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as investment advice and you should always consult a licensed professional if you want to deploy money. Also, very important, this podcast was recorded before the Luna and UST debacle. That is why there is no mention about it at all. And in fact, there is reference to the Mirror Protocol, which is in the Luna ecosystem, and I believe it may be dead now. 
So this is a very timely reminder that there is high risk of using synthetic acids and you should always do your own research before you decide to participate. Once again, thanks so much for your support and I'll catch you next time.